Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand in hand with baking for those we love. Today, well, it's a really big deal. It's our 200th episode. Woohoo! We've got my final greatest hit, as well as more listener favorites, and a bonus bake that Andrea and I both put on our best of lists. We're going to have a lot of fun. And we're going to leave you with some really big news, so be sure to stay tuned until the end. But for now, put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Stefan, there are two types of people in the world, those who restrict their ice cream consumption to hot summer months and those that eat it all year round. Well, I think we both fall into the latter camp. (laughs) (laughs) No question about it. I think ice cream is a year round treat and I was glad to see that our listeners agree. Mm -hmm. We wanted to give an honorable mention to Nigella's No Churn Bourbon Salted Ice Cream. Stefan, you fell in love with this ice cream a few summers ago, and how many times do you think you have made it at this point? Let's just say I have the recipe memorized, so. (laughs) That's a good sign. It's also a super Mm. simple recipe, so it's not as hard as you would think. Well, that is true. (laughs) So I first mentioned this ice cream in episode 85.5, and that was exactly like two summers ago. I think you're right. I mean, at first, Andrea, I was making it like... (laughs) Every couple days, it was I know. bad. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. My daughter really likes it, so I'll, I'll make it and leave out the bourbon for her. I actually don't think it's best that way. I think the bourbon really cuts the sweetness in that ice cream, and so you do need it. But I couldn't even begin to say how many times. Probably like 85.5, as many as the episode number. <laughs> the really funny thing about this is that the title of this ice cream is Everything I Love in the World, No Churn, Bourbon, Salt, Ice Cream. Yes. <laughs> yes. Nigella. Yeah, Nigella. <laughs> I've only made it once. I did not love it. I mentioned to the listeners, I think part of it is because I think I overdid it on both the bourbon and the salt. Oh, Okay. My next round, I was going to make it again and follow the recipe exactly, but then I found on the same sort of website or universe, Nigella's one-step, no-churn, coffee ice cream. And listeners, you know how much I love coffee. And I also love the first sentence of her recipe where she says, I'm almost embarrassed at how easy this is, but Mm. as you will find out, simple though it is to make, its flavor is deep complex and utterly compelling. And I just can't say that any better. I make this recipe perhaps every couple of days as well. (laughs) It's just heavy cream, condensed milk, a little bit of instant espresso powder, and two tablespoons of espresso liqueur. Liqueur? Liqueur. How how do you say that? Liqueur. Liqueur. (laughs) I often have Kahlua or Bailey's. Either one works. I usually have those on hand, so that's really fun. Yeah. I think the alcohol is important for consistency's sake. And Mm, I think that is one of the reasons 
she has alcohol in these no-churn ice creams. It keeps them from getting hard or icy. Yeah. This coffee ice cream is out of this world, good, easy. I can't say enough about it. So thank you for bringing Nigella's no-churn method to the show. And I encourage everyone to check out all of her variations. Yeah, and you know, she's been a champion of the no-churn ice cream. I remember way back in like 1999 or 2000, whenever her first TV show came to the States and it was on the Style Network. And I mean, I have no idea if the Style Networks even exists anymore, but it was Nigella Bites. And she did a variation that was like an orange ice cream and I'd never seen anyone make a creamy ice cream that was not a churned ice cream before I'd seen like a mm, granita or something like that that was more icy I think that's just one of her favorite things to do and she has a great repertoire of them that coffee ice cream Andrea because you loved it so much I made for my husband's birthday because one ice cream he dearly loves is java chip I think I think Haagen-Dazs? Yes, it's Haagen-Dazs who makes that or used to. And so it's impossible to find here. And I made him a homemade uh, Java chip with that. And um, oh, yeah. nice. I'm not a coffee person, but of course I had to try it. And yeah, it was so great. And he, he really enjoyed it too. So if you don't have a churn, which, you know, Andrea and I have done a variety of ice creams over the years that were both churn and no churn, but you can't go far wrong with looking to Nigella. She's got a lot of them. And I encourage you to read through the comments on any of these recipes because what you will find is all of the variations that people have done. Yes. I mean, just this one I'm looking at right now, a variation on the coffee is instead of espresso powder, the person doing this one used cocoa powder. And instead of coffee liqueur, they used a cinnamon whiskey. Hello. How good. That sounds like a Mexican hot chocolate no-churn ice cream. Okay. Okay. I'm writing that down. I know what I'm doing when we hang up. So let's just stop now or else this will turn into the no-churn ice cream episode. It's uh, the end of October, but it's the perfect ice cream season as far as you and I are concerned. I mean, I I don't see any reason to wait. I'm going to do it today. So let's move on, Stefan. We are up with your turn to take a greatest hit. And what do you have for us? Andrea, I have one of my favorite cakes that we made in Four Seasons, and it's relatively recently. It is the peanut butter and jelly poke cake. It came from the Australian blog, The Sweetest Menu, and I believe the blogger's name was Jess. We did it last September when our theme month was new twists on old faves. And the twist here was that this cake was kind of a riff on a good old peanut butter and jelly sandwich. This cake, just the title of it, was very exciting to my family. (laughs) I have mentioned before my husband's love of peanut butter. Oh, yeah. So that was super exciting. My child loves the classic peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So that was another reason that it was going to be a big hit. And listening back to episode 142 just reminded me what a hit this cake was in our household. And you know, Andrea, we were just talking in last episode in 199 about all of the terms and you had brought to our attention the new term from Shauna Seaver or new to us term, which is a counter cake. And I think that this peanut butter cake might fall into that category as well as certainly be a snacking cake. But the other thing we really liked about it is that it it could kind of toggle between being this very humble snacking cake I really enjoyed it cold, which you guys know is the highest praise I can bestow on a cake. (laughs) 
but you made it for your husband's birthday and my family has subsequently made it for me on like Mother's Day or my birthday as well. So it really crosses the line really easily. You know, my husband's birthday fell in September. Well, it always <laughs> falls in September every year. It's, that's how birthdays work. But I asked him this time what kind of cake he wanted. And he said, oh, I want that peanut butter and jelly cake that you made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was really fun because my daughter had a friend over who likes to bake. And so she was helping me. I had already made the cake. It had turned out great. Another individual had just given me some of her homemade raspberry jam. So I used raspberry, whereas I've always previously used strawberry. So that was fun. Yeah. And then I did run into a bit of a problem when it came to the frosting. I went to make the frosting and lo and behold, I was somehow out of icing sugar or confectioner's sugar. Mm, Okay. My daughter's friend said, well, I think you can make that yourself. And I was like, you can? So we looked it up and... We found a couple of articles that said you can put regular sugar in the food processor and process it until it turns into powdered sugar. Yeah. And I am here to tell you that that did not work for us. (laughs) Maybe if I had done it in my Vitamix, which is a more powerful blender, or maybe Mm. if I had kept it going longer in the food processor. Yeah. I think what I ended up with was... Do they call it a baker's sugar or... Baking sugar, like it's more like super fine? Super fine. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it never got to that powdered stage. And when we made the frosting, the frosting was very gritty and grainy. So... Bummer. Don't worry. We didn't toss that out. It's great with a spoon. Mm -hmm. Just eating it straight out of the fridge. But I did have to go to the neighbor's house and borrow some powdered sugar and then come back and remake the frosting. So... Okay, yeah. It ended up really great. You know, I don't typically put the jelly on top, again, of the frosting. I did the first time I made it, and I looked at my photos, and I saw that I did that. But for some reason, as I've continued to make it, I use a thicker layer of jelly or jam on top of the cake. So it goes cake, jam, frosting. Right. And then I don't put the jam on top of the frosting anymore. How about you? Have you changed anything or... You know, I think one thing that the recipe called for, and it was our only kind of small quibble when we reviewed this, is that it's technically a poke cake. And so what you're wanting to do, you skewer the cake and then you are wanting that jam to soak down. And neither of us attained that. And we were kind of speculating it was because our jam was a little bit too thick or this, that, and the other. At the same time, neither of us minded it because it really reinforced this idea that it was like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich because you could clearly see that layer of jam. So I've not had any reason to deviate from that when I've remade it. I think the layers are really pretty. I like the cake jam frosting layering and it it does reinforce what you are eating. And I didn't think the jam needed to soak down into the cake. It, It never bothered me. So that's how I've continued to make it. I have not made any changes in terms of the poking part of the cake as well. Yeah. The first time I made it, I had let the cake cool down too much. And so I thought, oh, that was the problem. But since then, I set my timer for 10 minutes and I pour my jam in right after the 10 minutes and it still doesn't really soak all the way through. And I'm fine with that. I think it's good. I just double up in terms of the amount of jam. So it's more like a layer. And I agree with you. It's more like a sandwich that way. And you know, I think one thing too, Andrea, 
is that I had made my original with crunchy peanut butter. And at this point when I make it, I just grab whatever peanut butter I have in my pantry. And I think that's great. It's maybe a little more texture, obviously, with a crunchy peanut butter, but it doesn't detract. And in fact, I like sprinkling just some peanuts on top as well. I, I like that texture. So if you haven't made this recipe, it's a fairly straightforward one layer cake that includes unsalted butter, brown sugar, peanut butter, vanilla, eggs, plain flour, baking powder, milk, and then your topping of the jam. We both use strawberry. I think that's what's called for, but I think any kind of jam would be delightful here. And then a peanut butter frosting, as you just said, Andrea, which is more butter, peanut butter, icing, sugar, milk, and then you can dollop on some more strawberry jam at the end if you want. Yes. I remember that when we reviewed this, we also said that it made a little bit too much frosting, but that's kind of a relative term because we were just like eating it with pretzels or dipping in strawberries or different things. So it got used up, all of it. Do not worry about having leftover frosting. No, you won't have leftover frosting. That's the truth. You will find a way to use it. Stefan, I was thinking to myself, is this the only recipe we've done from an Australian? I think it might be. I think so too. And we titled it The Wonder From Down Under because it was such a great <laughs> cake. We loved it. That title was in the running for one of my favorite show titles, but I decided not to pick it. I, I have always loved that title. Oh, well, it can be a runner up for you. <laughs> there you go. Well, remember, we'll have a link to this recipe in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 200, and originally appeared in episode 142 on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as our Facebook group. Stefan, when we decided to do this month of greatest hits, we decided we would each pick two recipes since we had four weeks and take turns talking about our favorite recipes from over the last four years and 200 episodes. Right. And lo and behold, both of us picked one of the same recipes. So why don't you go ahead and reveal to our listeners which bake we both love so much that it showed up on our top list. Yeah, we just couldn't cut it because it was on both lists and neither of us wanted to give it up. And that, of course, is Alexandra Stafford's No Need Peasant Bread. We talked about it for the first time Back in listener requested bread month of March 2018. And that was episode 67, another one of my favorite titles, No Need Indeed. <laughs> there is so much to unpack when I listened back to episode 67 because there have been so many changes since then. Mm. I just see, too, the evolution of our cooking as we talk about some things in this recipe and we mentioned some things that have held true throughout the show. One thing that really struck me, Stefan, is that you mentioned what a well-written recipe this was. Yes. You saying that made me think, you know, I'm going to go back and look at the recipe on the internet. And lo and behold, she says right there in the head notes that this recipe was updated on September 4th, 2020. So I don't know exactly what changed. It didn't look like the ingredients changed. But what I love is that means that Alexandra is constantly getting feedback from people who have made this recipe, people who have tasted this bread, and she's making updates. Yes. It could be that she talks about the bowls. Now, one of the reasons I love this recipe so much is that my husband and I both collect vintage kitchenware. Yes. She makes this recipe, 
using the one quart bowl from Pyrex, otherwise known as the Pyrex 322. And I see that right next to that now in the recipe, she says, update. These bowls are becoming harder to find and more expensive. That might be the September 4th update. I have so many of these bowls, I will never run out. But I'm thinking that might be what has happened is so many people have baked this bread and are searching for these bowls that people are kind of starting to fight over them a little bit. Well, and I think you raise another really good point is that a good recipe developer is always, it, it's never a static recipe really. Then you, you know, you are taking that feedback and that you are evolving with the, with the times and the ingredients and perhaps equipment shortages, whatever you have. Alexandra's book from which this recipe comes from is called Bread Toast Crumbs. And, you know, famously, Andrea, another reason I think this episode is so fun and funny is that often throughout the four years of preheated, there's been something super huge on the internet or in Instagram, and it's completely sailed over our heads. And so (laughs) by the time you and I get around to it, perhaps the whole world has already heard of it. But you and I are just like, you know, like Biscoff or whatever it could be. And this bread famously broke the internet when she first published it on her blog. And it was a recipe that her mother had developed and she had inherited from her mother. And it's just a very simple, no need, short rise dough. And, you know, lots of people were making bread during the the quarantine periods and lots of people have experience with kind of like an overnight sourdough. Andrea, I think that's even one that that you do. But the beauty of this bread is you can say to yourself, I want hot bread at dinner time. And perhaps it's only two in the afternoon when you have that thought, you can have hot bread at dinner time because this comes together so quickly and is so reliable. When I was reading Lori Colwin's Home Cooking that we talked about at the end of September in our preheated book club, yes, she has a chapter about bread and she makes the comment that good bread should wait on you instead of the other way around. Yes, yes. And it immediately made me think of this recipe. This is not a fussy recipe. If you print the recipe out, it will be um, six pages. (laughs) But that's just because there's so many variations. There's so many comments. There's so many ideas that she has. Stefan, you mentioned Bread Toast Crumbs, the cookbook. Yeah. And in episode 67, I mentioned that this recipe came from the cookbook and that I was thinking about getting it. Alexandra Stafford was kind enough to contact us after the episode and ask if she could send us copies of the cookbook. Yeah. And I'm here to tell you that cookbook is absolutely fabulous. It contains, of course, this recipe. And Stefan, I finally learned the term I should have been using for this type of recipe. Mm. I've always called it a template recipe. Yeah. Maybe because of my IT help desk background, (laughs) meaning that... It's something you start with and then you can modify. Yeah, yeah. I learned in the book, it is called a master recipe. Yes. If you buy bread toast crumbs, you will find that the master recipe has over 40 variations. I know for myself, one of the variations I absolutely love to make is the one with red quinoa and flaxseed. It is so pretty. Oh, wow. I feel like it's a little bit healthier. I absolutely love it as my morning toast. So I make the bread, but then I typically refrigerate it and I slice it in the morning and put it in the toaster and it is so good. And I love the cocoa bread. You might think that would be very, very sweet like a quick bread, but it's not. It's really, really lovely with 
like ricotta or cream cheese and berries. It has a lovely cocoa flavor, but it's not overly sweet. And it's really beautiful as well with the dark cocoa powder and the chocolate chips. I love that also. You know, she has so many variations in this book, Andrea. One I haven't made, but I should, based on our Flower Power Month earlier this year, she has an icorn variation. And remember, we did some baking with icorn uh, this year as well. Oh, I will try that too. I haven't tried that one either. In her full recipe, I also like that she has the high altitude instructions. That's something that you and I never have to do, but I know some of our listeners have to pay attention to that. Yep. She also talks about the number one thing that you can do to make this recipe a success no matter what, and that is use a kitchen scale. Yes. This recipe was made for us and everything we hold dear. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Bread Toast Crumbs is a really great cookbook, as Andrea mentioned. She has all of the variations for the bread, but then, you know, she also realizes that you might not get to all the bread before it turns a, a bit, so she has recipes that use stale or, or day-old bread and also bread crumbs. So it's a really versatile cookbook, as well as giving you tons of variations on that master recipe or template recipe. You can keep calling it that, Andrea. That's fine. <laughs> okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, over 70 recipes for using up the many loaves of this bread that you will bake. One of her other bakes that I have done, I'm not going to be able to pronounce it correctly. I want to say it's like pisola dieri, I think. It's the... Oh, I think that's right. It's kind okay. of like a French pizza, right? Yes. It's like a focaccia type bread. And then it's got anchovies and olives and caramelized onions on top of it. I mean, that one is a fabulous recipe. Anyway, yeah. I could go on and on about her recipes in this cookbook. I will just leave it to say that this master no-need bread is one that I make all the time. Just the other night, I was making some soup for dinner. I had told my husband that I was making some soup, and he made the comment, are you going to make some of that hot bread in the Pyrex bowls to go with it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So he loves it as well. I had exactly that happen last night. That's exactly what happened. I made soup for dinner, and the bread, it's just quick and easy, and you can literally, as I said... Have the thought of having hot bread and, and have the hot bread with you before too long. I think the reason that I nominated it for one of my greatest hits is of all of the recipes we have done over four seasons and 200 episodes, this is the one I make the most year in, year out, year round. And that is certainly worth a, a, a huge mention and hearty endorsement. I agree. And it works really well for my three-person family. Because I make the recipe as it's written, which is two loaves. Yeah. Each loaf is just kind of the perfect size to go through in a couple of days. So oftentimes I will freeze the second loaf to pull it out later. And it freezes really well and is really mm -hmm. good after being in the freezer. I've never noticed a problem with it. So it's something that has endless variations and has brought a lot of joy into my household. So it's an all-star winner. For sure. I think on our show sheets here, I noticed we said, Alexandra Stafford's original no-need loaf, the starting point for so much goodness. I mean, that just wraps it up. <laughs> That's a great wrap up. <laughs> well, Stefan, another thing that we wanted to pay homage to in our 200th episode is one of our favorite segments called the Globetrotting Gourmet. <laughs> Listeners, if you have listened to our show from the beginning, 
you will know that Stefan has done an enormous amount of work on her travels to bring us these segments. I think I've only done maybe one or two globetrotting gourmets, perhaps from New Orleans or Wenatchee, Washington. You've done a France, definitely. Yes. Oh, I, so, yes. I did have one from France. Yeah. But Stefan, you have really traveled the globe and have done the hard-hitting, on-the-ground field <laughs> research. And I just would love for you to kind of highlight some of your favorites and talk to us about your globetrotting gourmet experience. Oh, yeah, looking at this list was really, it, it really made me kind of like sit down hard because in four seasons, how many reports that I have filed and have been fortunate enough to visit so many amazing places. That said, you know, the very first Globetrotting Gourmet that I could find was actually in episode 30 before I had moved to London. And that was talking about some ice creams from around the world. And then my first one from the UK was episode 42, and I was really just telling you about what was going on and differences I had already seen. Yes. But in addition to that, yeah, in episode 47, I reported from France, Italy, and Germany. In 61, we were in Morocco. In 68, Finland. 76, Greece. 103, Ireland. I've been to Spain and the Canaries, Norway, Denmark, India, Venice, Prague, Portugal, and the last one was in Sweden, which was in episode 169. And it's very humbling, I guess, and also very poignant for me to see that list now since traveling, which I love to do and is a reason that my family and I moved to the UK is is really curtailed right now. So mm-hmm. yeah. I think of all of those, Andrea, the ones that really stick out the most to me are the ones that were so very different. And I'd have to go with Morocco and India because they just reset everything for me and were so eye-opening and out of my comfort zone, but in the best possible way. And I was listening back to episode 61 and, you know, the thing that was so amazing about cooking in Morocco, we took a cooking class in Marrakesh, is they have these amazing community ovens. You can walk to them with your uncooked dish And a baker who is there with a kind of, I think I described it as like a pizza oven. Um, That's not what it is, but that's the closest thing that I'd ever seen to this before. They bake it for you. That was an incredible experience to take a dish down through the souk and have it baked there by by this man. I think the other thing is India. That was in episode 125. Just... Being with the sights and the sounds and the flavors of a different country. I mean, I hope that's something I've been able to convey in Globetrotting Gourmet. It was certainly my intention. Oh, yes. You know, it's just proved something, Andrea, that's been a bedrock principle of ours since we started this show, which is just proving the point that food is such a great connector and certainly the best way I know of to learn about people and a culture. So I thank the listeners who also wrote in that this was one of their favorites. Listeners, Karen and Marcy, thank you for nominating Globetrotting Gourmet. I've had an absolutely wonderful time filing those reports. Stefan, it's so funny. Again, it's like we share a brain. I had underlined episode 61, Morocco, and episode 125, India, as well, yes. as two of <laughs> yes. my favorites. And one thing I wanted to point out about episode 61 that I think is funny Last week or a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about our favorite show titles and Stefan had things like No Need and Deed and Hot Buttered Yum, (laughs) I had made the comment that if you like a show title, that usually means Stefan wrote it because she's 
such an excellent <laughs> writer. And in my head, I was thinking to myself, you know, I'm just much more of a literal person. And I just, my titles are just the name of what this show is about. <laughs> but I couldn't think of any examples off the top of my head until I saw episode 61, which is perhaps the worst show title award. London Fog Shortbread and Communal Ovens in Morocco. It is uh, exactly what that episode was about, but I couldn't find a way to combine those two. And that story of the communal ovens has really stuck with me as well, Stefan, because it, like you said, it just reminded me how baking brings people together and in this case, how it brings whole towns together. I just thought that was fascinating. Another one of my favorites, which was a little more whimsical and fun, was episode 103, Mm -hmm. when you went to Ireland and you had that fabulous ice cream. Was it Murphy's? Yes, that was in Dingle. Yeah, on the Dingle Peninsula. Yes, 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 that's right. Yes. And listeners may not know this, but Stefan sent me a little stuffy (laughs) of... um, those those beautiful cows uh, that are used to make the ice cream. They're Kerry cows, like Kerry um, butter, Kerrygold butter. Yes. yes. So that's why I thought you would really love the little cow. Yes. I did really love that. And the funnest thing about that is that my dog has adopted that little stuffy as one of his toys. So you'll <laughs> often hear around our house me saying, go get your cow. Go. <laughs> So thank you for sending that my way. You're very welcome. And once again, you know, ice cream cropped up around the world and at any time of year. So that's uh, that's hilarious. Well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad the little cow is is happy in, in Olympia. Yeah. Well, we often joked about how much work it was for you to do these segments with sort of a wink, wink, nod, yeah. nod. Yeah. Because it involved cooking classes and eating fun desserts <laughs> and... You know, that's not really work. But that being said, I really do want to acknowledge, Stefan, that it is a lot of work for you when you're on what should be a vacation, that you're documenting and making notes and asking all the questions so you could bring us these reports. So I do really want to thank you. And it was work and it is much appreciated. Well, it was an absolute joy for me, certainly. And I again, my eyes are kind of just crossing from that list. I know... Not right now, but I'm I'm ready to get back on the on the airplane. So one day can't come soon enough. <laughs> well, the timer's buzzed, and we've got to get the sprinkles on top of this episode. Next week, well, next week we'll be missing from your podcast feed. After four seasons and two hundred plus episodes, we've decided to step back and see where life takes us next. It has been nothing short of a joy to plan for and create this show and to share it with all of you every week. And Stefan and I appreciate all of your encouragement, support, kind words, and love we've received from all of our listeners since the very beginning. So it's not goodbye, but instead a farewell for now. Until we meet again, thanks for listening, be well, and sweet dreams.
Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stephen Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. Hey, Andrea, have you tried the sheet pan mac and cheese from Bread Toast Crumbs? No. Oh, I'm going to make it this weekend and I will let you know how it turns out. Oh, I can't wait to hear that. And that's perfect because I am making some bread tonight. So I will save a little bit for some crumbs for that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, text me a picture. I will. And um, I don't know, save me some for my next visit. You bet. The door's <laughs> always open. <laughs> okay. I love you, friend. Talk soon. Bye-bye.